All right, folks, you're listening to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where Jim and Patrick talk about two movies randomly selected from a list of over 1,700. Today we've got Aliens from 1986 from director James Cameron and A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge from director Jack Shoulder of 1985. So two mid-80s sequels to classic horror films and as i mentioned i'm joined here by jim my usual co-host say hello, hello, hello. Jim. all right <laughs> hello jim so any anything yes, does anything to say about aliens before we get into it because we're going to be starting with that movie well you know actually i'll throw it over to you first because i'm going to be talking about aliens I'll, I'll take the lead on that one so patrick any uh, first impressions you want to give us on aliens well aliens is a movie i've seen a number of times now although and you and I did coordinate this, but we both watched the special edition. And technically, I have never seen the theatrical cut of Aliens. At least I don't think I have, unless I were to have caught it on TV or something, which I guess technically isn't the theatrical cut because it's a TV edit. Because this is the DVD I've always had. Mm-hmm. It's the version of the film that James Cameron prefers and says is better. But, you know, James Cameron's kind of obnoxious, so we don't have to take his word for that if we don't want to. <laughs> And, you know, it's okay to make fun of him because he can't hear us when he's traversing the bottom of the ocean in his submarine. So Yeah, special edition, it's about 30 minutes longer, give or take, 29, 28 minutes longer, something like that. Mm-hmm. James Cameron famously, the director's cuts of his films and stuff, I, I, James Cameron's a, a famous prick in terms of just, like, working with him if you're, <laughs> if you're a studio. He always goes over budget, which, I mean, he's a good director. Like, I, it doesn't bother me that much, but... I don't know. Part of me thinks that because he always fights against this studio kind of constraint things and he makes like super expensive movies that go over budget, go over time. He's still working on his Avatar sequels and stuff. Who knows when the (laughs) hell those are coming out. Part of me thinks that there's this alternate reality where we had a James Cameron that never worked within the studio system and made these like really, (laughs) really good independent movies. But that's like so hard to even think about because like, his movies are only movies that could be made through the studio system. Like Titanic yeah. is, you know, one of the most expensive movies ever, or at least it was when it came out in Avatar again. And yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, well, I was actually reading up on this a long time ago because, you know, me, I'm a big fan of the Alien franchise. This movie, he actually apparently came in on budget. He finished oh. filming it on time. And a lot of the people at the Pinewood Studios... Which we know from the James Bond films, of course. Exactly. We've talked about them before. They hated working with him, and they called him a prick. But who was like their biggest patron, essentially, before that? It was George Lucas doing Star Wars. Okay, yeah, that's right. And George Lucas, you could just flip over and, you know, like like on on the back like a turtle and leave him, you know? And they would just do things for him, like set the lights the way they wanted it, set mics in the scene where they wanted them. Whereas Cameron came in and was like, no, no, I want mics here. I want the boom mic here. I want lights exactly like this. And they're like, well, we don't want to do them exactly like that. And he goes, well, too bad. That's what I want. Yeah, James Cameron appears to have a bit of like uh, Kubrick to him or, you know, that kind of like domineering Mm -hmm. performance perfectionist to him yeah, and that's not necessarily a bad thing you know i mean i think he makes some uh, pretty awesome movies i mean avatar i kind of made me sour on him a bit but if you look at mm-hmm. like in my opinion his four best movies you know the two terminator movies he did aliens and titanic like i love all four of those movies i you know they're not perfect or you know I, titanic's still probably my favorite even though that's in some ways the worst of those four 
I don't know. I like T2 a lot, too. Those, those are my two favorites. So I like 90s James Cameron. And I mean, what I, about True that, Lies uh, is good. True Lies is good. True Lies is great. <laughs> it's a great movie. What about Rambo First Blood Part 2? He didn't do that. No, but he wrote the script for it. Did he? I didn't know that. He did. And I and I should specify that I also have not seen Piranha 2 The Spawning, but it but I really want to. <laughs> what about Piranha 3 Double D? Piranha 3D is respectable. Piranha 3D 3 Double D is is awful, yeah. Anyways, getting back to Alien though, it's kind of weird that this sequel came out almost like a decade later, like 7 years after. Yeah. Alien. And it had nothing to do with Ridley Scott. And for the longest time, the production company that I think had the rights to it, I guess, was Brandywine Productions. Yeah, I noticed them like... in the credits. I they does not ring yeah. a bell to me. <laughs> I don't know what the hell that is. I don't know if they is. exist anymore. But what had happened was like Brandywine had given like the distribution rights maybe to Fox. Yeah. 20th Century Fox. And Brandywine was trying to get a sequel made and they wanted somebody kind of like James Cameron because they had come across his script for Terminator and you know mm-hmm. and his work on Terminator and his script for Rambo 2. Apparently James Cameron didn't really want to do it. He was like it doesn't need a sequel. Alien is like a, a near perfect movie in his eyes. I guess they eventually convinced him to write like a 42-page script or something like that, just like a brief outline, and they really loved it, but Fox was refusing to greenlight a sequel and they wanted to like hold on to the Alien asset, I guess. And they cooked their books and described Alien as a loss financially. And I like, I, like, I don't know how any of this makes sense, but they were refusing to let it go. And they were trying to scare like third party production companies away by calling the first movie a loss financially, even though it gained like $100 million at the box office. Yeah, interesting. It was like one of the best sci-fi movies other than like, you know, Star Wars. Also, I wanted to say before we get into the plot... I would have, like, bet money, like, seeing this movie most recently. I mean, I would have thought this is the most expensive movie, you know, to make that we have seen on this podcast that we've done. Wouldn't you guess that? Yeah, I I would have. It turns out it's not. It's not even the second most. It's the third most expensive movie, at least as far as I can tell. One of the movies that's above it makes a little bit of sense to me. That's Silent Hill. Silent Hill was made for 50 million. Yeah. And I'm not adjusting these numbers for inflation, but Silent Hill was 50 million. That makes sense. It's a modern-ish movie, you know, mm-hmm. bigger budget, sure. The other one was Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is shocking <laughs> to me. Because, yeah, there's a lot of big effects in that movie. <laughs> yeah, but like... you you can't tell me you couldn't have afforded Walter Koenig for minimum wage. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know... Dude, I bet I bet the biggest effects they had to pull off was like the reduction of uh, Scotty and Kirk's gut. Oh screen, yeah. You know? yeah, the costume <laughs> budget because they had to keep making more yeah. costumes as James yeah. Dillon gained weight. No, but that's crazy uh, to me because like Star Trek was Star Trek as a property honestly wasn't mm-hmm. much when the motion picture came out. Like without the Star Trek movies, Star Trek would be nothing. It was just this old series from the 60s that your grandpa remembers. You know, it wasn't like yeah. a hot yeah. commodity. So I'm shocked to see that they spent 44 million on that movie and 44 million <laughs> in 1979 money, which is a lot. It paid off obviously. The movie made a lot. But yeah, it's twice as much wow. as aliens aliens was made for like 18.5 million 19.5 million something like that yeah adjusted for inflation that's probably a more expensive movie than silent hill but it's not more than star trek the motion picture which is amazing no and you know even the, you, you can adjust for inflation all you want but aliens looks by far better than silent hill or star trek honestly yeah, or yeah. star trek yeah so 
we open, and I think it's a great opening. It's kind of Star Wars-esque, you know, with like a ship slowly approaching the camera. We start out 57 years after the events of Alien. Wait, that's it? It's just 57? Yeah, I'm thinking of, again, in the special edition when they do all the stuff with Ripley's daughter... Why is it a picture yeah. of an eighty-five-year-old woman? Yeah, I don't actually, she died when she was sixty-six. But it, and like my favorite part about that photo <laughs> is my favorite part about that photo is it's literally just Sigourney Weaver with like this weird old-age okay. face add on to it. Like you can tell. Like I, I paused it. I was like, that's just Sigourney Weaver. That's nobody special. <laughs> So yeah, so it's 57 years in the future, and we see um, Ripley and her cat Jonesy being picked up by this, like, space junker ship. Their escape pod, which was, you know, jettisoned from the Nostromo, uh, is being picked up by these junkers. And they find Ripley's body, they bring it to God knows where, to like this space station, and Ripley is woken up in this hospital. Which I want to point out, maybe foreshadowing for when we talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, we got a better fake out in this scene than we did in anything in that movie. Oh, better dreams, has... better horrific dream yeah. sequence, yeah. Yeah, she has this awful nightmare or she, where she's talking to this guy. Paul Reiser. Yes, yeah. And he's working uh, for Wayland yutani which is the mining group or slash whatever they are. She, she has this awful nightmare where a chest burster comes out while she's in the hospital and then she wakes up and I'm like, wow, that was a lot better than anything in... <laughs> a Nightmare on Elm Street too. <laughs> this is 100% in the movie because this is a seven years later sequel. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. like home video, not really a huge thing when this movie comes out. It's like literally non-existent when Alien comes out. Well, now because Ripley's awake and because she destroyed the Nostromo, she has to be brought before this kind of like tribunal or like this hearing of all these Wayland yutani bosses mm -hmm. for the corporation to figure out why she blew up the spaceship and you know like and to figure out exactly how much money they've lost so you know they're asking her why'd you blow up the ship and her answer is obviously you know this awful man-eating xenomorph alien thing was attacking me and killed all of my crew and i blew up the ship to save earth and they're like no no we don't believe you and we think you're unfit for service in the Wayland yutani corporation and we're like revoking your pilot's license i so like that her pilot's license apparently was still active it didn't expire in the 57 years <laughs> she was asleep <laughs> i always thought that I was kind of yeah. weird <laughs> so the terrifying thing about this scene though is that when all of these like board members or, or whatever they are are saying that they don't believe her and that they don't believe that this awful creature was killing everybody she says something along the lines of like how can you not believe me and they say well we have about 200 people living mm -hmm. on the planet there they've been living there for like a decade and they haven't reported anything like that ripley just kind of falls apart because she realizes oh shit like this is gonna happen all over again mm -hmm. i don't know why this this scene is one of the scenes that made me laugh the most in this movie but right after that happens we get this hard cut to the colony called hadley's hope <laughs> And as, and as I understand it, all this colony stuff is just special edition, I think. I think this wasn't in the theatrical oh, cut. really? And I think it does not belong in this movie. I want the first time we see this colony to be in ruins. I think that's so much more interesting, so much more effective. Yeah, you're right. It, it didn't feel like it belonged in this movie necessarily, I guess. Yeah, I don't want to see Newt until she's got that Oliver Twist thing going. Like I, I, I feel like it <laughs> kind of ruins it. You know, in a small way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, as you were mentioning, we, we see this colony in full swing, and they're a bunch of miners for the Wayland yutani Corporation, and this digger crew family, like this, this family, they stumble upon the crashed Promethean ship, 
Are they called Prometheans? I don't know. Those I don't big, think so. That big alien ship. <laughs> right, yeah. No, you, you know what I'm talking about, though, right? I, yeah, it's from, the, the Blue okay. Man group. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, so they stumble on this ship. The parents leave, and later we see the father come back with a face hugger attached to him. So sometime later, the guy, Burke, who helped That's wake Paul Ripley Reiser, up right. at the hospital. Yes. This guy, Burke, shows up at Ripley's apartment, and he's there to tell her that they've lost contact with this colony and that they want Ripley to head out to the planet with all these other Wayland yutani people that they've hired. Because and, and they're not really admitting it, but they're like, you know, we're worried that these xenomorphs are out there. Mm-hmm. And... She essentially refuses until she wakes up in a cold sweat because she's really in rough shape. Ripley in this, at the beginning of this movie, is really not in a good place. She's not sleeping. She's having these constant nightmares. She hates her life because she had a 66-year-old daughter (laughs) who died before her mother because she's been sleeping for 57 years. So she wakes up in the middle of the night, calls Burke up and says, if we go to this planet... Are we going to be destroying all the aliens there and, and, and making sure that, you know, none of them are going to hitch a ride home with us and we're not going to bring any home with yeah, us? Yeah, she doesn't want to study them. She wants to just wipe them yeah. out. Yeah, and Burke agrees and she says, okay, I'm in. I love the aesthetics of this movie because it is like that 80s kind of like dingy, grungy, nihilistic future. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like all, all the hospital lab stuff is all white always. And then yeah. everything else where people live or actually do things in is all like gray and black and dirty and dingy and disgusting. <laughs> like in Ripley's apartment, there was just like garbage in the hallway in the lead up to her apartment. You know, <laughs> like it just mm-hmm. looks gross. It's the same with this ship. So like in the first movie, at the beginning, we got all these beautiful, like long establishing shots of uh, of the Nostromo. And when we see Ripley and all these space Marines waking up, on what's the name of the ship like this the something oh i don't even know (laughs) when we see them waking up on the ship we get these long establishing shots that are like reminiscent of the first movie and it still looks like like it's that same kind of like antique 80s futuristic technology you know and it also looks grungy and dingy i just really like that i love that you know like those blue laser lights that's my favorite yeah, so they're all waking up, and this brings me to my second favorite scene in this movie, and it's <laughs> as soon as that, like, sergeant wakes up, oh, he and throws he's a got cigar, the cigar in his immediately. <laughs> Yeah, this is <laughs> yeah. some of the best quality cigar chomping I've ever seen in film, this oh, guy. Oh, dude, he's, he's literally chomping it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. There's a scene where it looks like he's just, like, he's like he's literally sucking on it, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's enough. It's, I don't think you ever see it lit either, yeah. No, I don't think so, I don't think so, yeah. Ripley wakes up on this big space marine ship with all these other space marines and they all I guess get a brief introduction and they're all kind of like these classic army-esque characters you know they're all loud-mouthed and cussing and wisecracking and uh, yeah the the whole thing is that they're like overconfident they think you know nothing that's kind of the point of all these characters they're overconfident they don't think they can ever come across a challenge that they can't handle and obviously they do (laughs) so and we also have a uh, like the, the guy leading them is Lieutenant Gorman, yeah. and he's actually a rookie. And he it's because of him a whole series of <laughs> problems happen later in the film. But it's really is neat it? To kind of see I mean, that. I, I know he I know he kind of sucks as a leader. We kind of established that he doesn't really know what he's doing. But I also don't think it's necessarily his fault that things go horribly wrong. Also, you no, know what no. I, mean? it, it, I think it was kind of yeah. a weird decision to make him this guy who's 
you know, mostly done simulated combat or whatever. I, I because I just, I don't know. I just don't think that added a whole lot to the story, especially because ultimately the corporation is the one that really screws things up in this movie and in this series, really. Yeah, it's almost like he was kind of like a patsy or something, you know, like he was expected to almost have him and his team fail. The one one of my favorite characters in the movie is the android on board named Bishop. Yeah. Who is the new Bilbo Baggins? He's the new Ian Holm. Yeah, played by Lance Henriksen, who was just in Abominable, which we did last week. So, you know, a oh, returning wow. face. Oh, look at that. But yeah, he's great. And believe it or not, Ripley hates androids because yeah. of her, her, her run-in with Bilbo. She's a racist. Yeah, the, the, there's a bit of a conflict there, but for the most part, they get over it throughout the throughout the movie. Yeah, and I I like that it, it, it. I mean, it makes sense that she would have that view on androids, but I also like that the film doesn't waste too much time on it. It's almost like they're acknowledging that the android posed a huge problem in the original Alien, but also like this android here, it's not going to be a problem. We see like, yeah, he's competent. He does what he's supposed to do. He's heroic yeah. even, mm-hmm. and it's like so so like you just. Throw through his actions, you know, obviously she tr- ends up trusting him and she's kind of forced to trust him too. Yeah, and, you know, and I do like his his introduction to being an android in this. Oh, he's got he's the milk like coming out of his finger. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, that's what androids have in, in these movies. That's right. <laughs> I also like the performance by Lance Henriksen, too, because he does this kind of soft-spoken, kind of polite guy. You know, he doesn't show a lot of emotion or anything, but he's also like, there's something about his eyes, where he has just kind of this blank expression that really communicates android to me in a way where it doesn't come across as stupid. It's just like, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know what it is. He's just right for this part. You know what? I agree with you. And I also thought his performance in this reminded me of Michael Fassbender's performances. I would agree. Prometheus yeah. and Covenant. Yeah, Fassbender nails that aspect of his character pretty well, too, where he's just this like complicated being that understands emotions, but doesn't quite feel them all the time maybe yeah yeah you know i I was sold on fastbender bot when he started styling himself to look like peter o'toole slash lawrence of arabia oh and he started drinking heavily and going on carson (laughs) and whatever (laughs) yeah exactly yeah riding camels on on to letterman yeah when the ship arrives at the planet everybody kind of gets into this drop ship and they fly down to the planet's surface, and this in this dropship, like the, the the Space Marines and Ripley and Burke and Bishop are all in like this like little tank. But the dropship leaves them on the planet, and it takes off. All those Space Marines are given like these camera helmets where they can monitor what they're seeing through the uh, like through these like television the screens feeds, in the tank. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's, it's yeah. like Halloween Resurrection or whatever the the weird almost kind of found footagey Halloween sequel yes. that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> the one where uh, the one where Buster Rhymes beats Michael in Kung Fu. So when they actually set foot on the planet at the colony, the Marines find nothing. Absolutely nothing. But they do find all these like signs of battle. Like there's no life anywhere except for like battle scars all over the building they find the gerbils (laughs) yeah they find gerbils and like acid holes in the floor acid holes in the ceiling and that's when burke turns to ripley in the tank he goes oh my god you were right they're all over this place and kind of stupidly this lieutenant gorman this this rookie lieutenant declares that the area is safe so everybody leaves the tank and meets with the marines who are in the colony at this point they then all kind of come upon this laboratory where there's a bunch of face huggers in jars and we get this great little jump scare where 
one lunges at Burke while it's in the jar, and it's just, like, making out with the side of the jar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's really disgusting. Like, I really like oh, all yeah. the effects and, like, creatures in this movie. Yeah, and this is uh, this is Stan Winston doing the effects, or at least yes, doing a yeah. lot of them, or the creature design or whatever. Did he have anything to do with the original? I don't think he did, but I'm not sure. No. Um... But yeah, Stan Winston is like one of the big effects people in the history of Hollywood. He's no longer with us, but he was involved in Jurassic Park. He's involved in the Terminator movies, all these like big action movies. Some of his best work, believe it or not, Pumpkinhead. That is like my favorite creature design ever in a movie. Like the movie's not great, but that pumpkin head monster is pretty special. And if I'm not mistaken, he directed that movie as well. Stan Winston did. (laughs) I'll be honest, I've never seen Pumpkinhead. Oh, Pumpkinhead's awesome. It's on our list, though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Pumpkinhead's great. But hey, another classic role for Lance Henriksen in that movie. Well, hey, you know what? That's funny because actually, you just reminded me about something. Isn't it kind of funny? that James Cameron directed a movie that co-starred Bill Paxton twice by the way where he directs a movie about a story of like a doomed crew like I he mean, got this and Titanic I, I mean, mean they're they're very different but uh, yeah but I mean like Bill Paxton's just his regular like Bill Paxton's in the Terminator he's like the punk guy that Arnold steals the clothes yes. from and so it's like you know every director has their regulars it's um for Cameron it's Bill Paxton it's um, Lance Henriksen, because Lance Henriksen is also in The Terminator. Lance Henriksen was going to be The Terminator at one point. Really? Uh, but Yeah, because I think the original idea was, was to make The Terminator more like a, uh, could blend into any situation. But then they're like, here, let's get this, you know, 400 pounds of muscle Austrian <laughs> man who can barely speak English. This will be better. So it's like, yeah, so... You know, every director's got their go-to guys. I mean, it's not like James Cameron's Wes Anderson or Christopher Nolan. No. Like, there, there are people that repeat far more egregiously. So, I, I guess the only other semi-important thing to mention about the Marines entering the colony with Ripley is that they find this girl named Rebecca, but she goes by Newt. She's really not that much of an important character. I mean, she drives the story along in her own way. She's also thematically she saves important. Everybody. Because there's there's a there's a theme of like motherhood going on. Like obviously Ripley, we learn in this movie she is a mother. We knew basically nothing about her in the first movie. Remember, mm-hmm. and here she's a mother, but her daughter's dead, and now she's going to replace her with this new with this new daughter, kind of. <laughs> and then obviously new the motherhood da. comes back with <laughs> the aliens themselves too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, after they find Newt, the Marines are trying to get answers out of her as to what exactly happened to the colony, but she's just really not talking. Right. So Hicks, one of these Marines, he has to like he, he comes up with an idea to. Oh, track Hick, the Hicks is Michael Bean, another Cameron regular, because he's in the Terminator and the Abyss. Yes. Anyways, these Marines, they decide to track the colonists by their medical implants, I think they were, that they all had to have put in them. And they discover that literally all of the colonists are below this cooling station of a power plant. (laughs) So they just decide to head over. Yeah, and this is when Ripley, of all people, is the one that notes that, hey, they can't use bullets there because they'll just explode everything. This is something the lieutenant should be on top of. Yeah, they'll create a reaction. (laughs) Yeah, but again, this is just like, I don't know why it's important that the lieutenant doesn't know what the hell he's doing here. I like that we see that Ripley's competent and smart. Yeah, which which we'd already seen her with that, like, as they were flying to the planet, because she was using that, like, exosuit loader. Yeah, yeah, which is suit. important, obviously, because it pays off later. But that's a, a classic scene of, like, 
you know, kind of the the bigotry of low expectations of uh, Hicks, who's Michael Bean and the cigar chomping like drill sergeant guy. They're like, I don't know, can you can you do anything to help us? And she's like, Yeah, sure, I'm certified to use these things. And it's like, okay, but she's familiar with 50 year old technology. I don't know about this, but she uses yeah, it. And, and then they they're like all laughing. It's like, Oh wow, you showed us. We didn't think a woman could do this or something. I mean, and she's don't technically probably in her 90s too, if you think about it. Well, yeah. <laughs> The Marines head over to this coolant station underneath the power plant and they find all of the colonists. They've all been like cocooned by the xenomorphs. And just as they walk in there, it's absolutely disgusting. There's this colonist who's still alive. I think she says something like kill me or help me. And then this chest burster comes out and just it's just all bloody and gross. And because they can't fire any ammunition down there, they've been told to use flamethrowers. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they just hop in there and just burn this woman and this chest burster. I, I don't know a lot about n- thermonuclear power, but I feel like this is just as likely to cause an explosion know, right? as, yeah. as a bullet would be. But what do I know? <laughs> yeah, we're not scientists. When they do that... It just, like, wakes up all the xenomorphs that have been hiding in there. Because, you know, if every colonist was captured and cocooned and all of them are dead except for maybe, like, one or two, there's got to be a lot of xenomorphs, right? Sure. And that's correct. They're all over the place. They're crawling down the walls, crawling off the ceiling, jumping off the ceiling. And things immediately go from bad to worse. <laughs> you mean because they don't kill Bill Paxton yet? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, poor Listen, guy. people love Bill Paxton in this movie. He plays Hudson. I can't stand him. He's so obnoxious. He just, he's just too dumb. In he, this movie. he talks like a stoner guy, like like a teen movie kind of character. He's just really obnoxious, and his lines are obnoxious, and he's just like, I get what they're doing. He's the more than even the others. He's the overconfident one, and he's also the one that gets broken the most. But oh man, I really can't stand the performance. You know, no, and you R.I.P. Bill Paxton. But man, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but he's got that famous line in this movie. It's game over, man. Game over. Apparently, because you know James Cameron kind of let people do their own things for the most part that's there's lots of improv for him i think (laughs) yeah and bill paxton said that he came up with that line because he just he he assumed that his marine character would have done like a lot of uh video games like 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 training modules like virtual reality training or something because i I also read i I read someone writing about it like that was the first significant you know gamer joke in history and it's like i don't care I don't. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> it's like it was like writing about it. Like, oh, gamers have been like repressed, and it's like, no, I'm just who cares? I don't. I don't care. <laughs> no, you know, though, this movie. Screw the gamers. This movie's all about the action. And this scene that I'm getting back to, when they discover all the colonists, it just it just turns into chaos immediately. This person who's got a flamethrower, they get plucked up by one of the xenomorphs, and as they're like flying into the air, they, <laughs> I love this so much. They shoot the flamethrower off, which catches somebody on fire, and that person falls over like a railing to their mm-hmm. death. But their backpack catches on fire, which has got like a bunch of grenades in it, and that backpack explodes and kills another marine. <laughs> And it was all like in the span of like 15 seconds. I just thought that was amazing. I loved all the explosions. And yeah, then they all start like fighting for their lives uh, because they're just completely surrounded by xenomorphs. Poor Sergeant Johnson. He gets eaten by the aliens. Then Ripley has to take over 
because the rookie lieutenant sort of freezes and they're they're in this like mobile command unit tank which is pretty far away from this they're in the tumbler from the batman movies basically exactly yeah yeah except this one looks like a shoebox ripley takes control and she drives the shoebox with wheels towards the xenomorph nest and like busts through it to save the uh, remaining marines and also another great scene because i love whenever the marines are in the scene with guns which is like the the entirety of the movie they (laughs) just dump bullets into anything that moves and i love it when ripley comes through with the tank they're trying to get in the one side and a xenomorph jumps down and i forget who it is but they just start like unloading on the xenomorph and they're just like ripping it to shreds like one arm pops off the other arm pops off then it like explodes with like acid blood yeah the acid kills another guy Which, if I, I if I have a complaint about uh, this movie, it's the um, the acid blood seems to be a bit you know the movie picks and chooses when the acid blood is super important because there's a yes. scene Ripley's about to run over one of the xenomorphs in the car and it's like okay wouldn't the acid blood like affect yeah. The tires or something. I mean, we saw that it it goes through like multiple floors on a spaceship. Yeah. Yeah, I know that, that like that's something I've been thinking about a lot or you know, like in the first movie it was so difficult to get uh, the face hugger off the person, you yeah. know, but in this movie they just kind of rip them off. Yeah. And I'm like I'm like what's the difference between what the what the face huggers were in the first alien versus what they are in this one you know like i guess you can just tug them off now but sometimes you can't you know it's just it's all based around the plot well i guess you know i mean to be fair it never really gets a hold of people's faces in this movie that we see yeah, whereas like right. it yeah. it was really you know in the first in the first one but you know i don't know yeah it's it's a you know it's james cameron's little take on the same kind of story i also ought to point out that at least in the cut that we saw in the 1990 special edition we're over an hour in yes like we always talk about like the original alien it's like all this like slow build-up before anything actually happens it's pretty much the case here too so i think they're similar movies in that in that respect yeah well i was actually gonna bring this up to you at the end but as much as i love the original alien i think the pacing of it is not that great and it can make the movie drag on the pacing in this even though we watched like a two and a half hour long movie i thought the pacing in this was great even though the whole first hour was them getting to the planet and like fighting the aliens well i think the the difference is what happens after like at this point like the movie changes in this scene obviously and it's not wall-to-wall action for the rest of the movie but there is a lot of action Mm -hmm. but the movie does stop long enough for us to kind of catch our breath and us to learn more about the stakes changing you know the situation that all the characters are in is changes a few times and it's like each time Mm -hmm. we kind of stop it's like that perfect amount of like exposition and amount of like um advancing the story i I think it's yeah i mean i'm not i i shat on the first alien enough when we covered that movie because i'm not the biggest fan of it i'm not gonna say you know that this movie is paced so much better than the original alien but like it's you know on its own terms it's paced very very well i I do agree with that yeah and i mean speaking of the pacing specifically and to give an exact example i mean right after the scene that we just spoke about there's a few minutes of exposition while they're waiting for the dropship to come and pick them up so they can go back to their ship in mm-hmm. orbit yeah they're and gonna nuke it on... from orbit which is awesome yeah which uh, th- that would have been so cool to see just wait for the jj abrams star trek movies you get <laughs> you get what you want to see in those fuck off and fuck you jj abrams you absolutely ruined a franchise i love god damn it 
did he do Star Trek Nemesis? I mean, Star Trek was, oh, yeah. was a damaged <laughs> yeah, well, property was... <laughs> before he came on, to be perfectly yeah, fair. Yeah, either way. That's... Fuck you, J.J. Abrams. Though I'd be very polite if we met in person, just saying. His company was behind the remastering of Phantasm. He gets he gets some forgiveness he gets a pass. in my eyes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 okay, fine. He gets a pass. This dropship comes in to pick everybody up, and there's an alien that's snuck on board, <laughs> and it kills the pilot. And the ship crashes in like one of the most spectacular explosions I've ever seen on screen, I think. And like the ship <laughs> crashes and then rolls and then just breaks apart in this huge fireball while the characters are kind of standing in front of it, and they have to duck into like cover and stuff. It's just it's just such a cool <laughs> explosion, and like that satiates you for a while. You know, you you, you feel satiated. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh yeah, this that this action's great i could i could put up with another 20 minutes of dialogue well you know? yeah that's <laughs> that's like that. a climactic portion of that action scene basically it's like okay you know we ended on a bang that's kind of like the end of what like the second act or something or i guess maybe even the first act i think it's the end of the second i think we have a very short second act i think the second act is they arrive on the planet or maybe the second act starts when she's on the ship and she's meeting all those characters yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And then the second act ends here, and then the third act is all. It's however many characters we have left. Which who who do we have left? We have Ripley. We've got obviously. Ripley. We've, we have Newt. Yeah. We have Bishop, the android. We have yeah. Hicks, Michael Bean, yeah. who he's kind of in charge now. I, I don't. I, I think they're yeah, all. Because, I think all these Gorman, people are like privates, but he's like just whatever. I'll be in charge. Well, because uh, Hudson is is he's he's like snapped basically hudson bill paxton he he's not fit to lead <laughs> yeah and lieutenant gorman who also isn't fit to lead but he is well he's like, he's like he unconscious yeah and then there's uh what's her name vasquez uh, velasquez oh that's vasquez. it yeah. she's vasquez. one of the most fun characters we don't get that much of her but she's fun she's shown to be kind of tough a little annoying and overconfident but kind of witty and mm-hmm. kind of just an asshole which is great oh and we, we've also still got uh burke from uh, Waylon Yutani. Right, yes. He's still kicking around. With that giant fucking fireball that that crashed ship creates, we now have a new problem because everybody's now stuck on the surface of the planet mm-hmm. and they've got to figure out what to do. So they barricade themselves in a portion of the settlement, of the colony, I guess, in some random building. They're just trying to wait it out and, and figure out what they can do to get off the surface of the planet. But while all the stuff has been going on in like the xenomorph nest and while they've been barricading themselves away, Bishop has been analyzing the face huggers. It, he, he almost like he comes close to um, pulling a Michael Fassbender where you think he's going to turn evil because he like seems to appreciate and even just love these face huggers so much because, you know, they're like these evolutionary masterpieces. But he doesn't. He stays nice and... <laughs> normal whereas fast Menderbot becomes crazy and teaches himself how to play a flute which that's one also one of my favorite scenes by the way in alien covenant very homoerotic not unlike our second film <laughs> Sorry, I, I just thought homoerotic i was like yeah that's why i love it <laughs> well i'm not saying that's why you love it i'm just saying like that's that's what it is it's also in this scene, though, where we see Bishop kind of talking about the facehuggers that Ripley says, hey, by the way, I want you to destroy them after you're done, like, checking them out. Bishop says, oh, well, I've got orders from Burke that says he wants these two living ones to come back with us. And Ripley goes over and confronts Burke and, you know, she, she's like, you're nuts. You're crazy. You said that you weren't going to be doing this. And he says, well, you don't understand. They're worth millions of dollars. And Wayland yutani would pay that out to use in like their bioweapons division or something. 
then Ripley also says, she drops this bombshell where she goes, I saw in the records, you're the guy who sent these digger miner surveyor people out to the alien ship 200 kilometers away from uh, the settlement and started this whole alien issue here on, on this colony. He doesn't, I mean, like, he half denies it. You know, he's kind of like, nah, well, you know, sort of, maybe, I don't know. Prove oh, it. Oh, who could remember three days ago, you know? Right. We don't we don't know how long it's been, I guess, technically. Oh, yeah. I mean, we don't know how long they've been flying out there in the ship for, right? Yeah, because they put them to sleep, so it's not like it's a half-a-day flight, you know? Yeah. So this is when they discuss, like, plans going forward, and Bishop says that if he gets to, like, a computer, he can remote fly the other dropship down to them, right? Yeah, because Which, that's some good being Bluetooth assaulted. technology. <laughs> Or something. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand how that works, but hey. Yeah, well, because they're being assaulted, essentially, by... Well, not assaulted. They're being sieged, I guess, by these by these xenomorphs. Because they've barricaded themself, th- themselves up, and uh, the xenomorphs just keep throwing themselves. And this is a big moment when, when Bishop is like, no, I'll do it. Because, th- I mean, big for, like, Ripley coming to trust him. Because in his eyes, it's like, well, I'm the only one capable of remote flying this thing. But also, like... Yeah. There's probably like a because the xenomorphs they want to feast on living organisms they probably wouldn't care that much about them too so he's probably the safest to go out there yeah and and I because I would assume they can't impregnate a milky a milky fake person. well the the full xenomorphs aren't trying to impregnate it well I guess you know they I mean they oh, yeah, are I guess you're right. in, yeah. in 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 a fight they're not but you're right if they find someone just by themselves they'll scoop them up and go cocoon them I guess you know yeah but you're right the, this is like a big gesture on Bishop's part and mm-hmm. at, from this point on kind of has faith in him and uh, you know her, her 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 racist tendencies are slowly fading there's a bit of a lull in the movie here and I don't know if you felt it like from this point on where they're just kind of constantly being attacked by the xenomorphs oh they when they've got the uh the remote turret things yeah 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 like that for me dragged on a little bit too much like you know this two hour 35 minute runtime you, you could cut 15 minutes out of it maybe easily. but I will say that my Probably my favorite scene in this movie is coming up, too. It's when Ripley goes into that one room where Newt is staying, and they fall asleep together. And then she w- she wakes up and sees the little jar that held the face hugger is on the ground. And she's like, oh, shit. I love this scene. Oh, yeah. Like, it's fantastic. And uh, I love it, too, because, you know, she falls asleep under the bed with Newt and then wakes up and looks at her watch. And then as soon as she lowers her wrist, like you said, you know, she looks across mm-hmm. the room and sees this jar kind of rolling. <laughs> You know, and it's just a terrifying it's it's a terrifying realization. You can see that on uh, Ripley's face. Yeah, like people people who like really love the first alien movie. I mean, because everyone's like, I mean, there's a lot of people that like both, but you're usually you're an alien or you're an aliens person, you know, for the most Mm -hmm. part. And the people that love alien are like, yeah, it's a horror movie. The second one's an action movie. And like, yeah, aliens is an action movie, but I think it qualifies as action horror. I think this scene is as scary as tense as just about anything an alien is yeah now the only thing that would kind of remove it from that horror thriller genre is how it ends with the fucking space marines busting yeah. through the windows and just dumping bullets <laughs> into these face huggers <laughs> well you got to show bill paxton being useful at some point i guess right exactly yeah <laughs> yeah i just loved it so much they they I don't know why, like, there's, like, Newt had the one trapped against the wall and, like, a filing cabinet. She had it, like, pinned with a filing cabinet. Mm-hmm. I forget who it was that came in and said something like, oh, hell no, and then just pinned them to the wall even harder and just started blowing it away. Yeah, that's <laughs> Bill Paxton. 
<laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that was great, yeah. So the Space Marines saved Ripley and Newt, and it was clearly Burke who had released these facehuggers, and he had locked the door. He locked the door, and he even shut off the security camera when he saw that they were calling for help. Real dick. So everybody kind of confronts Burke about this and his plan to smuggle xenomorphs back to Earth in the bodies of Newt and Ripley. And he, you know, he denies it. But in the middle of their interrogation, the power to the facility is cut and a horde of aliens begins to siege the crew again. They retreat to a, like a secondary room, weld the door shut, but that does no good because they have like a surprise attack from the, from the ceiling, which I thought it was kind of, uh, that was kind of silly. Like why? <laughs> like, well, there's from the, from the floor too, because Hudson gets pulled through the floor. Yeah. But I just don't know why, like, don't you think they would have known that things can come in through the ceiling? You know what I mean? And you heard of a sunroof? <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, this big firefight breaks out, and it's just pure chaos. Burke is killed by a xenomorph. I think Bill Paxton is too, right? Yeah, he gets pulled into the floor or whatever. He gets he gets dragged down to hell where Bill Paxton belongs. Oh no, <laughs> poor Bill Paxton. No, poor Bill. He's not going to hell. Oh, we don't know that. So yeah, then uh, Vasquez and Gorman sort of sacrifice themselves to both protect uh, Hicks and Ripley and Newt. That's when they're going through the vents. Yeah, which is kind of a fun little scene. Like Newt is leading them through the vents. That's like the most useful thing she's done. She's leading them through the vents to get to Bishop, right? Because he's calling in the like he he's made it through yeah. the pipe to the transmitter and he's piloting the uh, uh, the secondary dropship down to pick them up. On their way, like th- like they're headed up to the roof of the facility. They're so close to escaping and then newt kind of like slips through like this rotating vent thing and just lands in like this lower level of the facility and uh she's kidnapped by xenomorph and taken to the xenomorph nest under the coolant facility oh which by the way we skipped over this part the whole reason that bishop had to go and remotely pilot down this this other dropship is because after the first xenomorph attack after they've barricaded themselves into this section of the colony bishop calls everybody over to a window and they look out and the ship exploding damaged the power plant and the coolant system and it's going to explode in like four hours well i mean they would be trying to escape regardless of that i mean <laughs> you're not gonna, i mean yeah. that's technically yeah. true yes there is a time limit but honestly it doesn't really like you don't need the threat of the complete chernobyl thing i mean we've got <laughs> we've got hundreds of aliens attacking us i feel like that's enough threat yeah. technically yeah, exactly exactly Ripley and Hicks and Bishop make it out. They get onto the dropship, but Ripley refuses to leave Newt. So she grabs a bunch of weapons and she's dropped off at the power plant. Ripley pretty quickly finds Newt in a cocoon and rips her out of it. But she also stumbles upon the queen xenomorph and like a literal shitload of eggs, like 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 a metric shit ton of eggs. Sure. Uh, that's, which that's one a begins... mathematically accurate description, I think. Yeah, I think so, yeah. This one egg starts to hatch right next to Ripley, and she just burns it down with a flamethrower. Then she just starts lighting up this whole room full of eggs with her flamethrower. Well, not gun. not immediately, because she she has like the queen makes a motion towards her, and she's yes, yeah. she's like using the fire initially as like a threat because the queen's coming towards her, and there's also these two other aliens coming from the side, these two other xenomorphs, which to me look like the the most like people in costumes in this entire movie i think they're the worst looking aliens so she kind of like shows the fire 
She shows like what the flamethrower can do and then points it at the eggs and the aliens kind of back down. I like that a lot that there's this like they're they understand what she what she means. They're they're not big dumb bugs. I mean they kind of are, but they're like, okay, no, they're 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 like they're like ready to let her go. But then yeah. she starts taking them all down. She burns the shit out of everything. Including yeah, those great. two people in costumes. Yeah, it's great. She's just like Wasting him with the flamethrower, then switches to the machine gun as pe- as like pepper and everything, and like shooting up like the queen, and then she switches to the grenade launcher and starts like fry- firing those in like the queen's butt. <laughs> well, yeah, the the her the birthing canal or whatever she wants to make yes, sure that yeah. this alien will not give birth anymore. Yeah, then I also really like like as the whole room is on fire, she whips off this like uh, belt of grenades and just like chucks that into the room too, <laughs> for good measure, you know. Her and Newt escape, and uh, like as the whole power plant is exploding, they escape, fly back to the ship. But it turns out the Queen Xenomorph hitched a ride and has gotten into the main ship. And uh, we're only alerted to this when a drop of acid hits the floor in front of Bishop, and then she gorily rips Bishop in two. And there's like all this like milky blood coming out of his oh, mouth and everywhere. It's it's disgusting, but it's really amazing to watch. Yeah. And then uh, we get the famous loader suit fight, you know, and I don't think it needs any other thing said about it, really. It's it's this famous fight. It's this famous fight. But when I was a kid, to me, this was so much cooler than it really is in here. Like mm-hmm. it, watching it now as I an agree, adult, yeah. I think it looks kind of goofy and stupid. It like does look a little slow. silly. Well, it's <laughs> well, it's this big, slow thing, right? And mm-hmm. obviously, you know, it's not a transformer. It, it can't move that fast. So it's like kind of... <laughs> She kind of fights it yeah, off. This isn't a Michael Bay movie. Come on. And also, as much as I love the design of the Queen Alien, because it's such a complicated creature and it's so big, when you actually see it moving a lot and it's not shot in like a close up and they have to show it like walking or running, it doesn't look as good. Yeah, and it's also got like this weird, funny head. You know what I mean? And like again, I like the design of it when it's like it's like a triceratops, there. but without the horns. It's kind of that's that exactly kind of it. Yeah, and it's moving really slowly, and Ripley's moving really slowly, and she's kind of like batting it. Like it, it turns into like a kind of like a Three Stooges thing, where she's just kind of like smacking it around from side to and side. Pokes its eyes and goes, yeah, yeah. And yeah, she starts choking it, and eventually she kind of pins it with the loader suit and manages to open the airlock. And quite dramatically, much like the first movie, it, it's it's sucked out into space. And poor Bishop, he's still alive. He almost gets sucked out to space, or the, the top half of him almost does anyways. But they close the bay door, the cargo bay door, before that happens. We end with Ripley and Newt laying down in their uh, in their cryopods to sleep. And that's really it. An exciting end to uh, an exciting action-packed movie. So, Patrick, what'd you think of Aliens? I like it a lot. I don't like it as much as I remember liking it, and I think a lot of it was the climax wasn't as exciting as I remembered. But it is a good movie. It's It's got a lot of buildup, and then when shit actually hits the fan with all the action in the second half, it you don't feel cheated. Like, I think it works mm-hmm. really well. And it I like it. It's just... I mean, obviously, I like horror movies a lot, but to me, this is just a, a more entertaining version of it's basically the same premise as the original alien the only difference is that the only difference is they kind of know what to expect and there's newt like those are other than that it's the same story basically (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, you, the, the the 57 years stuff is kind of just like a little thing in the beginning. And then obviously the uh, Ripley having a daughter is only in the special edition anyways. So yeah. I mean, it's basically the same movie as Alien, but it's just captured in a, in a much different way, different style. And I happen to find it a lot more entertaining than Alien. Jim, what about you? You know, I agree with you. I remember liking it a lot more as opposed to this watch. I kind of thought, oh, it's not as good as I remember. But all the action is still entertaining and enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really torn on which one I like more, Alien or Aliens. Okay. Because I do like that slower pace and that slower buildup and that mm-hmm. more kind of like scientific thriller you know where it's all about like this sci-fi stuff that's going on in a laboratory and it's all these scientists trying to figure out what's going on as opposed to this which is just like a shoot 'em up but i love the shoot 'em up stuff so much like i said Mm -hmm. where they just where the space marines just unload on xenomorphs throughout the movie i think it's so funny it's so much fun to watch (laughs) funny oh dude it's hilarious like whenever they just burst into your room and just start like ripping them new ones like it's just (laughs) and the camera pans to like the xenomorph and they're just like losing limbs left and right you know like I like the red lighting, too. We didn't talk about the red lighting after the power is cut. It's all dark red, and yes, I, I just think yeah. that looks really neat. It's it's also, if nothing else, Alien, the last, like, 20 minutes or so until she gets on the pod, is all, like, strobey, and it, like, you remember I was talking about it, like, gave me a headache. Aliens, I'll take the red lighting, the moody red lighting over the obnoxious strobing. <laughs> I'm pretty torn, but I, I do, for sure, I, I really do like this movie. I thought And I, I like fantastic. the character stuff in this, too. That's something that, you know, in Alien, there really wasn't anything to the characters. They were just kind of, like, real, normal people. And I like this mm. is a bit more, you know, a, a bit more traditional movie where, you know, we've got some kind of character arc stuff a little bit with with hicks and ripley kind of forming some kind of friendship kind of thing like a mutual respect kind of thing i don't know but I, I think even if you take away the the motherhood stuff i think ripley is just a much more compelling character here when she's dealing with newt than when she's dealing with that stupid cat <laughs> yeah i agree with that but all in all Honestly, great movie. I saw somebody, or I read once that somebody called it one of the greatest action movies of the 80s. And I don't think that's true, but it might be one of well, the most I mean, it's, most it's entertaining. one of them. I mean, 80s was a great decade for action. 80s was a great decade for, like, genre movies. It was a bad decade for, like, high-profile dramas. Like, if you look at what was winning mm-hmm. Academy Awards in the 80s, it's, like, not that much stuff that's still popular today. But mm-hmm. when you look at action movies, the Indiana Jones movies, Aliens, the first Terminator, Die Hard, like, there's some quality stuff there. Predator, you know, it's yep. a great decade for horror, obviously, if you're, especially if you're into slashers with Nightmare on Elm Street, the Friday the 13th movies, but even things like The Shining and Videodrome and The fly yeah so it's like yeah i don't know i mean there's a lot of good action movies i, I would put this up there this is up there well, for it, me with for the sure terminator and die hard i think i like this more than die hard and first blood and, and some other classic ones i don't think i like it as much as the first or third indiana jones movie but you know it's up there well no Sh- sean connery beats anybody else in in this category well i'm putting this the, above highlander <laughs> yeah go for it that's fine <laughs> So, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Jim, was this the first time you had seen this movie? Oh, you know, I think I saw this movie years ago, but it's the first time in a long time I've seen it. I will say the next 
Nightmare on Elm Street movie. What what is it? Dream, Dream Warriors? Warriors. Yeah, the I haven't one. seen that one. Oh, okay. But I am semi familiar, partly familiar with this one. Okay, well this this movie's interesting. I mean, well, just a bit of background on this, or in a bit of you know reception studies on this movie, if you will, is that this movie comes out in '85. It does well. It does about as well as the first one, maybe even slightly better. It's dealing, obviously, with a bigger budget, too. So this is like helping New Line kind of Mm -hmm. inch closer to being a major studio. It's still not there yet. But this is kind of a weird movie where, for a long time, Nightmare on Elm Street fans and horror fans kind of viewed this as like this is the worst one in the series because it does stand out it's freddy is treated differently in this movie than he is in all the other ones there's some they don't quite play by the same rules as the original film or the sequels the subsequent sequels would but the obviously the big elephant in the room is that this is a pretty gay movie there's a lot of homoerotic (laughs) subtext it was i think written to be subtle and it's absolutely not subtle. And that, that ultimately makes the movie pretty interesting because it's unique that this is 1985. We're not making a lot of gay movies, you know. Gay, I mean, gayness, queerness is just more accepted now than it was back then, obviously. And especially, mm-hmm. like, in the horror community. And I, I think that that has a big thing to do with why this movie wasn't very well received by a lot of fans of the series. I mean, I don't think it's a great movie, but it's definitely far from the worst movie in the series. It's a lot better than parts five and six. But yeah, I mean, so it's, uh, but even the, the, the kind of the gayness is a lot of the reason why this movie, I think, has come to be reevaluated by a lot of like horror fans. But it's also like, there's, there's so much to this too, because the lead actor, Mark Patton, is gay, mm-hmm. but he was not out when they were making this movie. So he actually like was kind of horrified by this whole experience. And he thought that, you know, because the movie wasn't being very subtle about its gayness, that it would, like, basically make him come out before he was ready to come out. Oh, and wow. he's, he was worried that it could, like, kind of sink his career. And if you, I think he did mostly stage stuff after this. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think he's still, a, like, a working actor anymore. But there's actually an entire do- documentary on this. I, I can't really begin to describe it. There's a lot of complicated feelings that Mark Patton has for this movie. But I think, at least eventually now, I think he's kind of come to look on it in a different way than he did when he was working on it well you know i'm gonna be honest so i'm gonna give a shout out to a big fan of ours uh somebody i work with named daryl daryl if you're listening thank you i ran into him at work today and okay. um he was like what what are you recording tonight and i said oh we're uh, doing aliens and uh, a nightmare on elm street 2 freddy's revenge and he goes that's a really gay movie and i laughed and i was like Oh, I guess you're right. It is. It is a gay movie. It literally is. And like, for some reason, I hadn't actually put all those points together until he said it. And I was like, oh, it is is a gay movie. He's right. Yeah, (laughs) I I think, (laughs) again, I think this was, it was supposed to be subtext when it was written, at least I think. But it's very, it's pretty surface level stuff. I mean, it's it's hard to miss. And you almost wonder like how they released the movie like that. Because again, mid 80s. If it's if we're not talking literal censorship, people were much less willing to talk about things like that than they are now. Yeah, for sure. And now my question is, what's less subtle about its homosexuality, this or Joel Schumacher's Batman? Oh, Batman and Robin. Oh, I was going to say there's Top Gun. <laughs> there's some other options. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> I'll say Batman and Robin. Well, I don't know. I, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. but And that one, too, Joel Schumacher is a gay filmmaker. Yes, yeah. So he kind of, like... I don't know. I feel like he he knows what he's doing better than the writer David Chaskin here, if you will. I mean, <laughs> you can watch Batman and Robin and, and and debate that amongst yourselves, dear listeners. But yeah, <laughs> this movie begins on a school bus. We're coming home from school. We have Jesse played by Mark Patton on the bus, who's got this like weird kind of emo hair, which he doesn't yeah. have in the rest of the movie. I don't know why they gave him that. But eventually it's just him and two girls on the bus. And then the bus starts speeding up. And we see the Freddy glove, you know, putting it into drive and stuff. And and they speed off into the desert. And the bus eventually stops. The ground around the bus starts breaking away so that the bus is like on this pillar of like rock. And then Freddy gets out of the driver's seat and starts coming at these three teens And then Jesse wakes up in his bed, again, looking nothing like he did there with the hair. And he wakes up screaming, of course, which he does many, many times throughout this film. And before before we get too far, we got, I just got to say, Mark Patton's screaming is incredible. Yeah, it's high pitch, and actually, it's I was so great. It is. He should he should have been like a, a like like a scream queen, you know funny you say that that's the name of the documentary that I mentioned, which I guess I didn't mention the title of it earlier. He also refers to himself as the first or maybe the only male Scream Queen. So I think over time, (laughs) Mark Patton has kind of come to sort of embrace that kind of part of his, you know, role in history. But I think for a while, that was like kind of this like contentious thing with him, obviously. But yeah, Mm -hmm. no, he it is a fantastic Scream. He's really, really good. He's up there with Jamie Lee Curtis and, you know, some of the other horror actresses as as far as screaming and i and i mean that as a very much as a compliment a good scream is important in horror movies it just is i can't describe how it is or why it is but it just is yeah i agree with you now i I will say the only thing i i don't like about this five minute opening is the whole um oh i'm not the biggest fan of this opening at all (laughs) i don't really like the scene that much and it's other than the scene itself i don't like that freddie is shown in it so prominently like right okay. off the bat, you know. Like, well, right off the bat too, if you're if you're paying attention and if you know what Robert England looks like when he's not in exactly. Freddy makeup, yeah, Robert exactly. England is is the, playing the bus driver, which I like yeah. that that that's kind of thrown in there because Robert England is not a big star in 1985. People, <laughs> you you show someone a picture of Freddy Krueger and you show someone a picture of Robert England at that time and they probably wouldn't have known that's the same person. So I think that's kind of you know they can sneak in a little Robert England makeup free cameo in there yeah and as as soon as i saw that i was like oh i know like i remember where this is going and then that quick shot of of freddy's gloved hand and his and his sleeve Mm -hmm. i was like ah you could have done that like a little more subtly you know what i mean like you could have well because the the first dream sequence of the first movie we don't really see freddy that much and I think here, here when when we see him on the bus, I think they're they're trying to keep the lighting dark. You're tr- they're trying to not show him show too much of him. But I, I think I understand what you mean. There there's still a little bit, maybe a little bit too much of him, even though there isn't that much. It almost felt like by this point, Freddie was also an icon. I don't know if I'm right about that at all. Like, I, I know don't think you like... are actually, if if I may. Yeah. So fine, yeah. I I don't think, and you'll see this a lot in movie series we've talked about it a little bit with the james bond we've definitely talked about it with friday the 13th because he doesn't jason doesn't even have his hockey mask in the in part two 
But I don't think they quite knew what they had with Freddy. I think they knew we've got an awesome premise, but they didn't even know how important Robert England was to the role because originally they didn't cast him. Originally they just had this, I think it was a stuntman playing Freddy. And there's one scene in the movie that I'll talk about later where you can tell it's not Robert England and it looks awful. Yeah, so I don't think they really knew what Freddy was. The filmmakers didn't. And, I, and I've always heard in, like, documentaries and stuff, people always talk about, like, the third Elm Street movie as, like, that's when Freddy became, like, a household name, like an icon-type mm. figure. So, I mean, that's just that's just what I've heard. I don't know. Yeah, because, again, I, I have no clue. But it, it feels like they just threw Freddy in too fast. They want people to be like, oh, that's Freddy. There he is. He's right there. You know, I don't know. But that, but that was just me, a, 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 somebody who's pretty much an outsider to the series. Premature frejaculation, perhaps? Oh my god, ew. What would that look like? Uh, it looks like the, the a, penis a monster that he ends desert. up in as a Nightmare on Elm Street 3. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it looks like the scene you know, with the mini bat in this movie. Yeah, and I want to ask you about the score, because I think the yeah, score... It's, too, it's, even a, in the it's opening, a different score. Yeah, it's, it's or not... it's a different composer. It's Christopher Young, the guy who did the score for Hellraiser, and they don't have that classic Elm Street motif. It's disappointing. No, no, and because what? Because it's not tubular bells, but it is something like akin to that. You know, not. I think you're thinking of Phantasm. I don't think it's really like that. No, in the in the in the original. Uh... Yeah, I, I, it's nothing like that. Okay, never mind then. Yeah, no, we're we're missing we're missing that. Even though I think the score to this movie is fine, it has its own little theme that they play on the bus in the opening scene, and it's fine, but it's not as classic or as memorable as the original. Absolutely not. It, it for me, it just doesn't produce that same kind of. Um emotion or that yeah it's not as yeah it's the creepiness it's that yeah original elm street score is so great at making you feel uneasy it's perfect Mm -hmm. so with jesse now awake we get to meet his family his family has just moved into 1428 elm street nancy's old house from the original this is the walsh family We've got the father played by Clue Gulliger, which is yeah. not only the most fun name to say ever, but he's just like a fun character actor type. Like, he's good. I like him. He's in Return of the Living Dead. He's in, I think he's in Piranha 3 D. Maybe he's in yeah, Piranha he's in 3D. He's in one of them. Oh, yeah. No, he uh, he might not be in Piranha 3 D, but if I'm not mistaken, his son directed that movie. Whoever his son <laughs> is. It's probably the last movie he directed because it sucked. But yeah, yeah, Clue Gulliger is great. He's got, um, Jesse has, the mother is played by, I think, Hope Lang. And then he's got a younger sister, too, whose name I did not write down because I don't care. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) So Jesse goes to sit and talk with them at breakfast. There's complaints about the house being too hot, that there's a problem with the, the air conditioning or something. The little sister goes through this box of cereal to get these, like, Fu Man fingers, what they're called. They're basically like little cones that you put on your fingers. Dude, that is the best. That's my favorite scene in the movie. She's eating this cereal so nonchalantly, and it's called Fu Man Chews. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I like when she when she pulls out when she puts the Fu Man fingers on. It's yeah, like, it was like it, it looks like the like, Freddy like glove. Chinese obviously. nails is what I, is what it was. Yeah. As racist as Ripley was with the android. I know. Yeah. So Jesse takes Lisa to school. Lisa's played by Kim Myers, not Meryl Streep, even though she looks just like Meryl Streep. (laughs) Or like a young Meryl Streep. She really does. But they're friends. Lisa is like this... She's really rich. 
And so oh, I, sure. I, I get the impression she's a year or two younger probably than Jesse because otherwise she would drive herself to school, right? Especially because Jesse drives this beat up piece of crap car that he doesn't even use a key to start. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she, yeah. I like that. And she's like, whoa, aren't you worried someone would steal it? And he's like, steal this, you know, deadly dinosaur or whatever, I think is the phrase yeah. he uses. <laughs> yeah, it's great. We don't really understand their relationship yet. I mean, it becomes a romantic thing, sort of. It's Well, not even sort of. It becomes a romantic thing. But it's first like, okay, are they friends? How long have they known each other? Because Jesse's just moved to this town. We don't know what's going on. But the next scene we have is the little um, baseball scene where <laughs> at gym class, Jesse gets hit in the head with a baseball hit by... Ron Grady. Grady, yeah. I, I, I didn't even know he had a first name. But yeah, it hits by Grady hit by Grady and then on the base path after a rundown <laughs> Grady and and uh, Jesse get in a fight that ends well it actually starts with Jesse getting his pants ripped down so this is their first <laughs> ass shot of the movie it's made even more noticeable because the women are like ooh nice ass oh yeah yeah <laughs> Oh, yeah, because uh, Lisa, among others, are, are watching this because they're at their little archery thing. But yeah, so then Coach Snyder has the two boys stay after school and doing just push-ups. Then I like this because at first you think like, okay, Grady's the asshole. He's going to be like the bully. But no, they make up their differences like really quick. Like uh, <laughs> Jesse's just like, hey, you got a problem yeah. with me? And he's like, no, I'm just I'm just having fun. It doesn't matter. And I like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was nice. It was nice that it didn't turn into like one of those high school things, you know, like like something you see in a movie that revolves around high school where it's like, I'm going to beat you, man. You know, like it's yeah. just you keep on running into the jock, you know, but he was just like a cool dude. Yeah, it becomes a friendship, you know, the, the, the friendship that we don't really understand that well, but they, they're friends. <laughs> <laughs> and importantly, Grady also mentions that Snyder hangs out at quote queer s&m joints yeah see you know i'll be honest i missed that okay well i mean we see we see the joint later on (laughs) yeah we do so jesse continues to have obviously these nightmares in his next one he comes face to face with freddy and here freddy's like hey i need you you've got the body and i've got the brain and then he does this awesome thing where he pulls back the skin on his head and presumably his skull too because he exposes his brain and it's just incredible yeah that part was cool yeah the the makeup effects here are really great and this is it should be noted this is a bit of a different look for freddy he's darker looking he looks it looks less like makeup it look it feels more real than it did in the first one and it's just it's a creepy look his his nose is a bit more hooked too he's got more of a witchy look his eyes are kind of more sunken it's an interesting look and each elm street movie has kind of its own tweaks to the freddy makeup but this one is probably the most unique other than new nightmare i guess the only thing that kind of takes me out of it is he talks a lot in this movie but it's never like him trying to scare anybody for the most part it's usually just him having a conversation right uh, yeah jesse and i'm just like this isn't scary this is just a a creepy looking dude having a conversation with a guy who's upset all the time yeah and i guess (laughs) that's just the that's just kind of the role they gave freddie he's not his his whole thing throughout this movie is he's trying to get jesse to do his bidding i guess Mm -hmm. so he's not really trying to kill jesse He's, uh, it's, it's a weird, Freddy never does, Freddy never acts like this in any of the other movies. So it is kind of a different role in which he's cast, if you will. So at school, Jesse falls asleep in science class 
and Grady plays a prank on him where he puts a snake, like a boa constrictor, on him. (laughs) And I like this scene a lot because this one was this one was the best fake out in this. Movie, yeah, because you whereas, think it's a, you think it's a Freddy dream. Yeah, because all the other Freddy dreams up to this point, which I think there were only two or three, they were all pretty obvious that they were Freddy dreams. Well, yeah, once the bus starts going through a desert in the middle of yeah. Ohio, sure. Or when he comes downstairs and drops like the pickle jar or whatever, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, sees Freddy outside, you're like, okay, this is this is a Freddy dream. I get it. But this one was a great fake out because it was kind of like the the dream at school in the first one where it was a so bit, seamless, yeah. you know. But then I was like, oh no, it's then I was like, it's gonna be a Freddy dream. Oh, it's just a great prank. And awesome. it's tense too. The boa is like going around his neck. It's like on the shoulders, like moving towards the neck. It's like I get uneasy watching that. Yes, yeah. But anyways, Jesse screams as he wakes up, and then the science teacher apparently thinks he did that. <laughs> he he like gets mad at Jesse, and he's like, "What the hell's wrong with you?" Yeah, but put that like, snake really? back. You know, <laughs> like, I like too. He's not mad at Grady. He he kind of he flips Grady off, I think, but he's laughing about it. Like he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you got me. <laughs> yeah, I almost got choked to death by a snake. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> I want what they have. Okay, I want a friend I can almost murder with a snake, who will still appreciate my <laughs> friendship. <laughs> so Jesse is about to go hang out with Lisa, but his dad won't let him because he has to finish unpacking his room. And this is the best scene of the movie. It, it's inarguable, yeah. this this dance scene. <laughs> it's so great. It's so stupid. And it's so funny, but like embarrassing. Because yeah, the song playing cringy. the song playing is Touch Me by <laughs> Fonda Ray, which is yeah. like a kind of a, it, it's an 80s song, but it's kind of a disco song. Uh, it was a minor hit that was covered in the 90s and became a much bigger hit, actually, by Kathy Dennis. But it's it's a fun song. And it's, anyways, Jesse puts on this song as, like, motivation. And though he does clean things up, he also dances. And there's there's the great, the close-up of him using his butt to, like, close the drawer, which which yeah. is really funny. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I love that it's not one motion, because if it's one motion, you know, you can kind of understand it. But no, it's like a, <laughs> he does, it's, like, it's two or be, three kind of. It's got to be three of, butt taps, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's he's trying on like the the goofy sunglasses and then he's dancing on top of the bed with a little mini bat which he's holding by his crotch and <laughs> and this is he does this like forward thrust and then there's like a pop sound effect yeah and that's <laughs> like that's like right when lisa and his mother come inside and it's like so embarrassing. But oh my it's god, so dude! If awesome. I had done that, if I had done that, I would have just wanted to kill myself. You know, like oh, I would yeah. never. No, this. Well, I would never want to be seen but, again. But why would you do this? I I love that this. But you know, this is. <laughs> but that's also kind of what I like about this movie, and what I like about the like how it kind of portrays Jesse. It, it's sort of an inversion of like the the male gaze to a certain extent. Like I, I like yeah. If you watch a lot of like slasher movies, maybe we don't see a scene just like this with female characters, but female characters in a lot of those movies are treated at like objects. We get butt close-ups, maybe not in jeans, but you know, maybe not closing drawers, but we get things like that. <laughs> you know, we get like pillow fights in some of those movies and stuff at like you know slumber party type things, and it's like I like that this is kind of a twist on that where we're seeing dumb shit done by a male character. It's it's kind of great. Yeah, uh, you know what? I actually, when I saw this, when I watched this scene, I thought pretty funny. Definitely out of place 
in a movie like this where I'm supposed to be scared and on the edge of my seat. I, I, I thought it belonged more in like a, like a screwballs or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I agree. Because, I mean, you want moments of levity, especially because this is still relatively early in the movie. This is about 20 minutes in. There's more scary stuff to happen, obviously. But, like, you can get away with, like, a fun, you know, characters having fun kind of scene. But this just goes on for a while and it's a yeah, bit yeah, it's like so a solid, dumb. Like, minute or two and you're like okay but anyways lisa helps him finish cleaning up he, she's not horrifically turned off by this <laughs> and as she's helping him she finds a diary in his closet and it's nancy's diary and they're reading from it and at first it's like nancy's her kind of her lust for glenn her boyfriend Johnny mm-hmm. Depp and then they flip the pages and it's like then it's it she's reading it and it's like oh he comes for me at night and they're like oh this is more horny stuff but then it starts it's describing Freddy and it's describing how he wants to kill me and it's like oh this is weird I, and then I really liked that scene oh I, really I, I do that. too yeah this, the back-to-back scenes for very different reasons are probably my two favorite scenes this diary scene and then the dancing scene that happens right before it both very very well done in their own ways that diary reading scene was so great because when jesse starts reading that bit where he's like he comes for me at night under the covers always ripping tearing at my at my shirt Mm -hmm. you know and they're reading it like it like you know it it could sound hot and heavy but we as the audience know oh my god it's freddy and then as soon as uh jesse reads the line about claws yeah, His whole then demeanor he, changes, you know, and he's like, oh, my God. And he starts flipping through the diary uh-huh. to read more of it. And I will say, just generally speaking, Mark Patton's performance in this movie is incredible. I think he's really good. I mentioned this, the great scream. There's a couple scenes mm-hmm. he has here where he's, like, panicking, and it's like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Especially, like, if you look at this in comparison to, like, other movies like it. Like, to be honest, we don't tend to have the best acting in a lot of these horror slasher movies in the 80s. This is some of the best, yeah. I think, from from a lead. He's really good. Yeah, from everybody else, I'm not so sure. I liked Clue Gulliger as the father. I thought he was great. I think I like all three of the main teens, and there's really... There's only like four teen characters, basically, and there's three important ones, and I think they're all good. Like, Grady is this, like, kind of comic relief. He's good. That's Robert Rustler, who I think he's in Weird Science. I think he's Robert Downey Jr.'s buddy in Weird Science, or he's in one of those kinds of movies. He's fun, and then I I think Kim Myers is good. I agree with you. I think all those teens are good. The woman who played the mother, Mrs. Walsh, uh, what was her name? Hope Hope Lange. Hope Lange. Lange. Oh yeah, is it Lange? Is it Lang? I don't know. Why would it be Lange? What the hell? That's well, because there's name. an e on the end. Yeah, that's why it'd be Lang. Listen, you're a really smart guy, and you know all kinds of stuff about English. So I'll, I'll, listen, I'll defer to you on this. The person who I thought—it's well, a Japanese name, so. <laughs> Fuck! I mean, just stop it. <laughs> yeah, the the only actor who I thought kind of fell short was Marshall Bell, Coach Snyder. Schneider. Yeah. Pardon me. Yeah, Coach Snyder is not great. Yeah, especially in. In his death throes, it was like he looked like. <laughs> to be like fair, to be out. fair though, how would you perform a scene where you're getting spanked in the ass with a towel to death? You know what I mean? Like yeah, that's, that's a hard a, that's... scene to perform in 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 defense of Marshall Bell. <laughs> I'll give him some <laughs> slack there. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of have this repetitive thing where Jesse has a dream every now and then. And, and then, you know, in the real world, world Lisa ends up bar- borrowing the diary and off screen she does like her research on who this Freddy guy is. Grady had told Jesse that the house he moved into was, you know, the previous owner was this girl that went crazy and she saw her boyfriend get butchered and and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, so he doesn't, yeah, I mean, he thinks Grady's full of shit at first. Eventually Mm -hmm. he questions his dad about it and his dad's like, uh, you know, how do you, like, his dad's (laughs) like, yeah, we we got a great deal in the house. Like, who cares? (laughs) But as Jesse gets, like, weirder and weirder, you know, his parents kind of have differing views. His dad becomes convinced that he's on drugs. Yeah, dude, that, that's hilarious. And then his mom is big on, like, no, he just needs, like, psychiatric help. Like, that's a... And this, this mostly comes about after this one dream scene where Jesse wanders outside in the rain and goes to a bar. And it's, as we see inside, it's pretty clearly a gay bar. You know, there's a lot of like leather. Yeah. A lot of leather daddies. Yeah. Well, the the best one is Bob Shea, the producer of this film and all the Elm Street movies. He's playing the bartender. He's got a great cameo there. Oh, is he really? That's great. Yeah. He cameos in a lot of the movies in the series. I don't think he does in every one, but he's in a lot of them. So Jesse gets a beer, but then Coach Snyder comes up to him and stops him because, you know, he's under, underage. And then he takes him back to the ch- to the school, and Jesse is running laps. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> this is a little this. I mean, this whole dream scene is a little silly. There's never for one second a doubt that it's a dream, obviously. But I do like that Coach Snyder is back in his j- office in the gym, and he's still wearing the leather daddy outfit. I like that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's like the dumbest looking outfit too. Oh yeah, well I mean, you know. <laughs> and then in a in a fun scene, he gets attacked by all the sports equipment in his office. You know, he gets a lot of balls thrown at him, which is, that's what I was about to say. Well, and I <laughs> honestly think that's why that's there. That's this is another subtext thing, which to be honest is more subtextual than what's about to happen when he actually dies, because he gets stripped of his clothes. And he gets tied up by jump ropes, which is a fun little effect. And he gets dragged into the shower, mm-hmm. which is where Jesse is. He, Jesse's in the shower after running laps. And he gets tied up in the showers naked. And he gets spanked with a towel in the ass numerous times. <laughs> and then Freddy emerges from all the steam. And this is the scene that's very, very clearly not Robert England. Robert England has a very distinct way of standing and walking when he's Freddy. He's big on, he kind of slumps his shoulder towards towards the ground, or the, the shoulder of the mm-hmm. arm that's got the glove, because that was like a thing with Robert England. He wanted to be like the old, look like an old like gunslinger in like a Western, you know, when, when you kind of like slump a little bit because of the holster on one side and he wanted to do, to do that, but with but because of the glove. And this guy is just like walking upright. We don't see his face. And it's it's very clearly not Robert England. But he slashes Coach Snyder in the back, killing him. And then Jesse looks down and sees that he has the Freddy glove on his hand. And he lets out another scream, probably my favorite scream in the movie. Yeah, and it was a great reveal as well. I, I really enjoyed that reveal compared to like other reveals of Jesse standing there where Freddy was. You know, in the, yeah. In, well, in this is a good one because it's the first one too. It's like when Freddy mm-hmm. again the the steam is there. Freddy arrives from the direction where we know Jesse is. 
but I like that. Uh, yeah, I like the the conclusion of that scene is Jesse is like, oh no, wait, I'm Freddy. You know, it's it's good. It's yeah, and he's co- and he's like he's splashed in blood. It's a great look. So then the cops apparently find Jesse naked on the highway and they bring him home. And this is when the father's like, okay, what what are you on and who's selling it to you or something like that. <laughs> then we get some more stuff. We get the culmination of the house being hot stuff, which in my opinion, I don't really know what they were doing with this, with this whole aspect. It's it's like a, as a part of the plot. Like there's a scene where Jesse is in the dream and he like looks around and like candles and records and stuff are melting in his room, which is really neat. But other than like, yeah, Freddie burned to death and he worked at a boiler room. Like does the house need to be hot? I don't know. I don't yeah, really get it. I, I didn't really get that either, but that's what I assumed it was all about. So but the I culmination of that is this bizarre scene. <laughs> they have two pet birds. Yeah, they've got a couple little parakeets. They start freaking out when it's, I think it's like 97 degrees in the house. And then Jesse opens up the cage and sees that one of them's dead. We see that like in one really brief shot. It's only like a couple of frames probably. It's like less, definitely less than a second. And then the other bird gets free and starts flying around. It attacks Kluguliger and then it blows up. <laughs> <laughs> it, like in this like it just in this thing of the, this like flame yeah and it's a very bizarre scene you know the, then they're worried about like okay is gas leaking from the oven or something but then clue Gulliger is like no you you, you, t- you to jesse he's like no you did something with this all your fault you must have had like cherry bombs or something and it's like yeah i like that i like that explanation yeah so it's just like he doesn't really i don't know I, I also, I think this happens all before the Coach Snyder stuff, now that I think of it. I'm pretty sure it does. I'm not looking at my notes closely. Yeah, I I think it does, too. Like, I'm a little confused. Yeah, because on... that's why, because he kind of wanders off. And even though you know it's a dream, like, if it's not a dream, you kind of think that he wanders off because his dad is pissed at him. That's kind of what that is. I just don't get why the bird needed to explode. Oh, like, I don't well, either. I don't... It's just fun. It's stupid. It's, yeah, it's like, great. I, I definitely enjoyed it. I thought it was great, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't get it. So Lisa takes Jesse to the old abandoned power plant where Freddie used to work. This is where she's presenting the research, you know, because she looked into like who Freddie actually was. He kidnapped 20 kids and brought them to that power plant and killed them. This is after, obviously, Coach Snyder is dead in real life. And Jesse is thinking, like, oh, my God, I dreamed about it. And Lisa's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean, like, you made it happen. She's she's thinking maybe he has, like, some kind of powers of premonition or something. like. So she takes him there to kind of, like, hoping that he can pick up something. You know, I, I don't really know how to describe what she's trying to do. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's almost like she's trying to... Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't describe it either. Like, I get what she's trying to do, but I can't describe exactly. it. Exactly, yeah, sense. yeah. I, that's that's me. But anyways, Jesse has another dream where he's in his sister's room, and he accidentally wakes her up, and he's like, wait, no, 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 go back to bed. And then as he goes to kind of tuck her in, he's got the Freddy glove on his hand, and he's like, oh, shit. That one was creepy. That, that was pretty creepy, but I will say, like, a lot of these dreams... This is going to be a big complaint I have of the movie overall. A lot of these, they just kind of happen, and nothing really comes to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. And Like, I'm skipping when, half the dreams. There's there's a lot of stuff here, and it's just kind of things happen, and, you know. I yeah, know. and none of them are, are, are particularly scary. Like, like that one where he tucks his sister in, like, that this one's creepy good. just yeah. because, you know, it's kind of, like, pedophilic. 
you know, and I think it's kind of creepy and wrong. But other than that, there's really nothing to write home about for the majority of them. So at this point, Jesse starts taking caffeine pills and stuff to try and stay awake. He doesn't want to sleep because he's freaked out about these dreams. Lisa is having a party, and there's, like, some talk of, of like, oh, I hope your dad's not DJing anymore because apparently last time he <laughs> played nothing but Benny Goodman records, and they're yeah. like, don't worry, <laughs> yeah. we've got a plan. My mom and I have a plan to get him away, and we see that later on, and it's fun. So at this point, Jesse and Lisa, they're not, like, dating, but they are they seem to have something going on. I, it's probably comparable to Nancy and Glenn in the first movie, who, like, I think were kind of boyfriend and girlfriend, but honestly, it wasn't too important. They were just, like, they could have just been friends, and it wouldn't have been that different. I think that's eventually, yeah. it, later on in this movie, it becomes important. The, the, the relationship between these two. But at this point, I think this is the first time Lisa kisses him kind of on the cheek or yes, maybe the yeah. forehead or something. Yeah. So it's like they're not, they're something. They <laughs> they probably don't know how to put a label on it at this time. They don't know how to label what their relationship, their relationship status is. It's complicated, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, only because Freddy's involved. <laughs> well, you know. Grady's also kind of in the middle of it. We'll get to that. But this is also like Jesse, as this movie goes on, continues to just like question his own sanity more and more. And again, I think this is really some great Mark Patton acting here. Like mm-hmm. when he freaks out at Grady at the cafeteria, which I love that this entire scene, Grady is speaking with food in his mouth. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and I I love that we got that shot of Jesse taking those caffeine pills. Because that isn't like the beginning of his slip from sanity, but that's definitely adding to it. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it just makes it all that much worse. Absolutely. Yeah. So Lisa is having her party, and Grady can't go because he's grounded. He claims he threw his grandmother down a flight of stairs, which I love that line. I'm pretty sure he's just joking, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe this guy's so. like homicidal. We don't know. The dad is there. He's at first, he's like, you know, grilling. And then eventually the mom is like, hey, why don't we get you upstairs? And when he, when the two of them are upstairs and they finally turn off the light, then everyone at the outdoor pool party starts cheering and they, they pull out like a wagon full of beer and they put some, you know, modern pop music on. And I, I just think that's like a funny little thing. Dude, and, and it was hilarious too, because as soon as that light went out, yeah exactly it was in like less than 10 seconds oh yeah (laughs) oh it's immediate and it's just it's good good comedic timing there and then jesse is at this party but he's still not feeling great he feels worse and worse about the dreams he and lisa end up talking in this little they refer to it as a cabana which i don't know how many again lisa's rich i don't know how many people have cabanas in their ohio homes but (laughs) He yeah. he is insistent that he's like, I shouldn't be here. I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I feel like I'm losing my mind. But she's like, no, 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 stay. And then she kisses him. And they're about to have sex. But then Jesse's got a Freddy tongue coming out of his mouth. And that's when he decides to run off. He's like, okay, maybe I'm endangering her. Or maybe I'm just going crazy, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't go home. He instead goes to Grady's house. He sneaks into Grady's bedroom, and there is probably the most blatantly um, homoerotic line where, where 
Jesse says, he's like, something is trying to get inside my body. And Grady's like, yeah, and she's named Lisa, and she's waiting for you in the cabana, but you'd rather sleep here with me. Yeah. And it's like, it's it's kind of amazing yeah. that they wrote the line that way, and if they were trying to be subtle. Like, I don't know how that's subtle. Like, it, it kind of works as, like, a joke coming from Grady, but, I mean, yeah, they I mean, had to was have been that also like Was that also, like, mid-'80s? culture towards homosexuals or like homosexuality in film you know well yeah it works as like a grady line in in the kind of the gay panic sense at least a little bit i mean (laughs) yeah you know what i mean but but like i'm not like complaining i just think it's like how the hell did you write that line and think it would be subtle you know what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah so Jesse says, listen, I'm going to sleep here, but you got to keep an eye on me. If I begin to act weird or anything, wake me up. Do not let me leave this room. And they both fall asleep, and Jesse starts freaking out, and Freddy starts coming out of his body. It's a great—there's some wonderful effects in this sequence. Oh, yeah. You see the the finger knives coming through his through Jesse's fingers. You see an eye in Jesse's mouth, which is kind of weird and silly. But then the scene, then the moment when Freddy actually fully comes out and it's like he just kind of pulls off this like screaming upper torso and body of of Jesse, which is like a fantastic. The way the scene is edited is just really good. How it switches from Jesse the actor to like these dummy shots Mm -hmm. or whatever you would call them. It's it's just really Mm -hmm. well done. At this point, obviously, Grady is screaming. He's trying to get out of his bedroom, but it's locked. And then Freddy kills Grady. He and it's a really neat shot. It's when it's when Grady's parents come to the door that the nails, or excuse me, the finger knives, which I guess they're nails at this point because he's not wearing the glove. The knives are coming out of his fingers, which is a little weird. But they go through the door, and there's blood on them, which is kind of neat. Well, I mean, at, at this point, hasn't Freddy stepped out of Jesse's body, technically? So it actually, it is the finger knives? Well, yeah, but I mean, he always hold, had the glove. Like, pinned him to the door? He always yeah, had a glove. Okay. Like, those, those, were, those are not a part of Freddy's body. I mean, they're part of the glove, but the glove... Yeah. At, after this point, the glove is, like, gone. We don't see the glove again. Oh, it, wait, really? I don't think so. He doesn't have it at the, at I, the I ending scene. He might oh, have I it guess. in the in the I don't yeah, I don't think you see the glove after this. I could be mistaken. But but we've got a fun cameo to point out here. Grady's dad is played by Ferris Bueller's dad. No, it isn't really. Yes, it is. I don't know the actor's name, but it's him. It's it's you at first you kind of see him and it's like, okay, he sort of looks like him, but he's just like a guy in the mid eighties, you know, maybe half Lyman the Ward? population looked at Yeah, you know, it's whatever his name is. Yeah, it's him. Huh? There's a there's a fun moment too here where it goes on for a little long, but Jesse's crying like he's he son of a bitch, you killed him, and he's looking at the mirror, and Freddie's looking back at him in the mirror and taunting him. Yes, yeah. The death of Grady here is the death that felt the most in keeping with A Nightmare on Elm Street, especially the first one, like the whole like death in the bedroom kind of thing, like like in in a teenager's bedroom. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, I, I understand. And it was actually, like, surprisingly gory and gruesome. Like, that scene where Freddy does come out of Jesse's mm-hmm. body, but also when he has Grady pinned to the door and he stabs him so brutally, or I guess, like, he's so powerful that, like, the claws go through the door and then blood starts to seep through those claw marks on the other side of the door. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, like, that was an amazing effect, and that was also just so brutal. And that's the one that reminded me the most of, of anything from the first one. Right, I, I think that's fair. Yeah, it's it's also like this movie, there aren't a lot of characters here, and there aren't a lot mm-hmm. of, there's really just the three main teen characters. Like, you know, we get we get a coach obviously getting killed, but that's, that's a little different than in the original movie too. We just had more, 
more characters in that. I guess not that much more, though. I think there's just, there's four in that one. So I guess, you know, maybe it isn't a big difference. Lisa, at this point, has left her own party because she is looking for Jesse. And they find each other. Jesse's panicking. He's covered in blood. And he's telling her all about, listen, I killed Snyder. I killed Grady. Like, something's wrong. And she's like, no, 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 wait. This Freddy thing isn't real. You have to fight it. You have to, like, overpower it. You're strong. But then Freddy emerges again. Jesse's no longer there. Jesse Jesse is in Freddy's body now, basically. Mm -hmm. And Freddy attacks her, and they fight a bit. And he has her, and he's like... And then he starts speaking in Jesse's voice, and he says, like, kill me. And so she tries to kill Freddy. She stabs him, but it doesn't do anything. Freddy goes off to wreak havoc on her pool party. She, he kills a bunch of people. <laughs> the pool starts on fire, and he throws people <laughs> yeah. into the grill and stabs people, and the, the fence is, like, electrocuted or whatever. It's a weird scene, and this is a scene that a lot of fans of the series have a problem with because it's weird to see Freddy interacting in the real world. You know, this is not a dream. This is this is happening, as far as we can tell, right? It's he's yeah, and and, and it's also weird how it leads into it because doesn't he run out through like the the French doors leading from the kitchen where Lisa is, and then as soon as he jumps out through those doors, like the doors shatter, he disappears into thin air. Yeah, he disappears. And then he first, emerges yeah. through like the pool pump cover or something like that. Oh yeah. He, he just does kind of a like explodes out of yeah. the ground. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very interesting scene. I, th- I thought it was fun. I thought it was a fun scene, but very interesting. It's a, it's a fun scene, but it's different because we're used to seeing Freddy stalk one person and kill them mm-hmm. or fight them or chase them. It's weird seeing him go full mass murder in one scene, you know? He's also not doing anything weird, like, with, like, his body or to other people. He's just killing. Like, you know, there was no sucking anybody into a bed in this and exploding them onto the ceiling. Well, I guess because those are the dream sequences, right? I mean, that's just... Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. more creativity like, in, in that. Like, Freddy in the real world, like, yeah, we got the pool on fire and stuff and there's not really an explanation for that but like freddy in the real world is just a guy with knives on his fingers really he's just kind of a normal guy yeah you're right yeah i mean he can't do anything that awesome he can't turn into a giant snake or worm like he does in the third one he can't be a sexy nurse with a tongue that ties people to beds like he does in the third one you know (laughs) it's a lot of great stuff in that third one Then Lisa's dad gets his gun and goes to shoot Freddy, but Lisa stops him because obviously, you know, she's thinking of, hey, it's Jesse in there. And well, Freddy disappears again. He walks through, he like disappears through a fence, but then there's also like a wall of fire that comes up when he disappears. I like, I thought that was a cool effect. Yeah. And everyone's like, okay, where did he go? But Lisa knows where. Lisa goes to the power plant the abandoned power plant, and this is where we we get some kind of uninspired encounters with a few kind of monster creatures mm-hmm. that just kind of show up and leave quick, and Lisa eventually finds Freddy. They're in this industrial setting, obviously. They're on these, like, metal walkways, you know, not too dissimilar from some of the stuff we get in Aliens. This could easily be a James Cameron shot scene because he loves that kind of industrial crap. Yeah. <laughs> so Freddy confronts her, but then she's she's trying to get Jesse to come out. She's like, hey, you got to fight this. You're stronger than this. And she says, I love you, Jesse. And this, Freddy reacts to this. He gets like weaker or something. This seems to affect him. He's he's like kind of like slumping to the side, like holding the railing. And so she kind of realizes, okay, wait, I'm onto something here. And she eventually kisses Freddy. Ew. 
yeah, you know, hey. And then <laughs> and then this is this is what does it. This is how Freddy meets his end. We get some awesome fire effects where they're coming all over, you know, the the fires coming all along the railings and it's coming at Freddy and then Freddy starts melting, which is some awesome makeup stuff again. Yeah, that was great. And then, you know, Freddy dies and it's Jesse that emerges. Jesse's like covered in ash or you know he's just burned he's not looking good but hey he's alive then because at this point it's a tradition to have dumb endings in a nightmare on elm street movies at least the first two (laughs) we get another scene on the bus this is there's another little fake out here because jesse starts freaking out because he thinks the bus is going too fast and he's like hey driver slow down but then they stop to pick up more people and everyone's looking at him like, what the hell's wrong? And then the the other teenage character, she's like the the fourth one, the person we haven't mentioned yet. She she like leans over. She's behind Jesse and Lisa as they're sitting on the bus. And she's like, hey, that was a real great party. And then Freddie's arm pops out through her. Yeah, yeah. And the bus drives off into the desert again. And that is the ending to A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddie's Revenge. Kind of another similarly silly ending. I don't think it's as... It doesn't look as bad as the dummy being pulled through the door in the original. But it's kind of stupid and it feels tacked on at the same time. Yeah, it doesn't look as bad, but I think it's a worse ending. It's debatable, but yeah. But it's the same kind of thing. It's this character that we had all reason to believe was dead. Just like in the in the first one, you see like Johnny Depp and all those other guys that are dead in the car. And it's like, yeah, this girl was at the party. I assume she's dead. I, I don't actually remember seeing her die specifically. But at the, at, regardless, she refers to the party as great. And it's like, yeah, that party was interrupted by <laughs> some murder. I don't think that was a great party. <laughs> so, Jim, what did you think of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 Cruise Control? <laughs> uh if i'm being honest i didn't actually like it that much i don't know it just threw me off it wasn't that scary it wasn't freddy was a little boring for me the main characters were a little boring the story was a little boring it was just uh, it was just all a little boring it didn't feel like a a nightmare on elm street movie you know it wasn't i didn't get that same i don't know anything from the first movie. Yeah. You know what I, I mean? Well, I, under- I think I understand what you mean. I mean, I, I do agree that the dream sequences are less interesting. We don't get the nightmarish imagery that we have with, like, the body bag dragging itself yeah. through the school hallway. Like, that is awesome. We don't get anything that cool in this. We get dude being tied up by jump ropes, which is kind of neat. But, I mean, that's really about it. All the other dream stuff, pretty unspectacular. Not that creative. I will say, though, this is an unusual... This movie stands out from the rest of the series for a lot of reasons. A, nothing that happens in this movie is mentioned in the in the rest of the series, and there tends to be at least some continuity. You know, 3 and 4 are very much connected. 3, 4, and 5, excuse me, are all connected, you know, pretty closely. This movie's like the, you know, the redheaded stepchild in that sense. But it's also the most serious Freddy has ever been, or at least, in, you know, the remake maybe a little bit more. But, like, Freddy is even more serious in this movie probably than in the first one and he's not really jokey he's not really too jokey in the first one he, he kind of he becomes more and more comedic after this but mm-hmm. this is a dark serious freddy i agree the movie's not that scary but it's trying to be and i at least respect it for that i will take serious creepy freddy over you know the crypt keeper goofy freddy any day <laughs> Yeah, it would have been nice if we could have had like um, a, a serious, creepy Freddy that was also scary. 
you know, he, but he, in this one, he was just lackluster. Everything he did, you know, it was just, even that really cool scene where he pulled his skin and his skull back to show his brain, I really liked that, but it was also just kind of not scary or even that gross, you know what I mean? I, the, there's just something that was missing, and I'm not even sure what it is, but it's something for me that's just missing in this movie that makes it so almost tame. Okay. You know? I sort I think I understand what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I, I I'll just say I'm not the biggest fan of this movie. It definitely sounds like I liked it more than you. This is not one of the three best movies in the Elm Street series. Although that's, you know, there are three very good movies in this series, which not that many series can say that. But this one is the fourth or fifth best, I would say. I I like some of the stuff it does. I think that the acting is is actually really strong here from the main characters, especially Mark Patton. Mhm. Yep. I like the tone of Freddy, and I like the tone of this movie, and I like the weird dance scene that completely conflicts with the tone. But I, I just that's think a that's plus. a fun yeah, scene. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I do think there's a, there's some scenes that don't really go anywhere. A lot of the dreams in the first half of the movie, like the pacing feels off. There's something like something happens, but then nothing really happens, and it's like I, I feel like we didn't get enough of the Grady relationship too to kind of warrant the emotional reaction to his death. I think I, I just feel like there's something missing kind of early in the movie to me. Yeah, you know, I I will say, though, the one thing that this movie actually does pretty well is create characters and have character development. You know, well, this it, is and it's movie... it, but they only have the three though, so maybe having fewer characters, it's a little easier to do. But no, I don't disagree. Yeah, and I mean, th- th- there's lots of scenes where they play off each other or like actually speak to each other, and we mm-hmm. learn things about their characters through yeah. them speaking and conversing with each other. I do that think was the nice romance, the Jesse and Lisa romance, could be a little bit better, a little stronger, especially. And I, pr- I probably wouldn't say this, except for it's the ultimately the thing that defeats Freddy. It becomes super important if it's just yeah the romantic plot, because movies usually have some kind of romantic interest, even if it's not a big part of the movie. Then I wouldn't complain about it, but it ends up being hugely important. Lisa becomes the hero through her love of Jesse. That I, to be honest, I just never felt. That I did, I never that never felt that real. I think they 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 came off more as just like a good pair of friends, and I think I think the friendship comes across really well. But I I don't see a much of a romantic relationship there. Yeah, there was definitely more like um, uh, endearment than. And love. I'm not saying that because the actor's gay. For the record, I just think you know it's it's <laughs> it's not that. Yeah, I I totally agree with you though. I wholeheartedly agree with you. So Jim, which of these two movies do you prefer? Well, my friend, I'm going to take Space Marines dumping a shitload of bullets in Xenomorphs. Okay, so you're a Star Tro- you're Starship Troopers fan then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'll, I'm going to take Aliens over A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. I don't know. I just enjoyed it more. I enjoyed the story more. There's probably, actually, there's for sure less character development in, uh, in Aliens, but the I... characters aren't. There's, well, I, mean, cause, I don't cause know. Really... I, think, I think the characterizations probably... I think both movies have a sufficient amount. I don't think that's a deficiency in either movie. No, 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 no. I agree with that. It's not a deficiency in either movie. But Aliens probably has uh, maybe like a little less. Just because you already have Sigourney Weaver pretty much fleshed out from the first one anyway. No, you don't. She's nothing. She's not a character in the first one. She's just... <laughs> I completely disagree with you. I, th- I don't think she oh, is a character goodness. until this movie. 
She's just woman in the first one. Well, I think from the first movie, she's she proves herself as a as a strong, independent person who can single handedly fight off an awful, ter- ter- terrible space alien. Yeah, but you don't define character through what they can do physically, though. No, but you can define a character of how they treat things around them and how they come out of a situation. I don't know. I, we're, we're in disagreement here, but this goes back oh to you goodness. and I just enjoyed Alien differently, you know? I didn't like yeah, Alien exactly. that much. But no, yeah, so I, I, I like I liked Alien Aliens more than uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. I just uh, enjoyed it more. Again, I enjoyed the story, the aesthetics, the whole alien thing. You know, I'm a big fan. And for me, it really just came down to... Um, the point that a nightmare on elm street 2 was just it was just lacking something and i think for me it was that that it was ultimately that scariness it was that scary factor that All just right. never entered into it for me well i'm i'm going to agree with you i prefer aliens i think it comes down to aliens lives up to the potential of its premise of its plot you know this is mm-hmm. a movie about people stranded on a planet fighting off a bunch of super powerful giant bugs it's a good version of that story. I think Elm Street 2 is ultimately not that effective as a Freddy is possessing this guy to try and do things type story. And it's not that effective as like an Elm Street creepy dream nightmare. Those nightmare sequences aren't that effective. So yeah, Elm Street 2 could be a lot better. I appreciate it, kind of the weirdness of like how unsubtle the movie is when it's trying to be subtle about something. I appreciate that stuff. (laughs) But yeah, there's no question to me, Aliens is far more entertaining. So Jim, how do you think this works as a double feature? Oh, that's a good question. I'm I'm inclined to say it 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 doesn't mainly because actually the runtime of Aliens it is this long movie that it's it's extremely long but it has this amazing story to go along with it and it is this roller coaster of a ride you know full of lots of action and excitement and and stuff like that whereas for me Elm Street Two is just kind of meh throughout you know it's it the, the whole thing for me is just lacking I'd say no it it doesn't work for me. I think I'm going to agree with you. I think for me, it's Aliens, though, and again, the special edition, the two and a half plus hour cut. Though it's very slow in the first half, overall, I do think the movie is very well paced. We get that first hour and 10 minutes or whatever of buildup, and then from then on, it's a lot of action with some good, quiet scenes mixed in there. Elm Street 2, I do think, is a weirdly paced movie, especially in the first half. There's like dream, one scene at school, and then another dream. And it, it just, there, it, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of building of tension throughout that movie. And I think as, as a follow-up to a movie that does that kind of thing so well, I think it's disappointing. So that's, you know, that's really where I come down on that. So yeah, not a great double feature, not the worst could be worse exactly and you know i just want to reiterate i think you just hit the nail on the head there with uh, elm street 2 for a movie that is to that's to follow up a movie that was so good at that whole pacing thing and incorporating dreams elm street 2 kind of failed at that it did one dream come on (laughs) it was one dream aliens Oh, are yeah, you talking yeah, about yeah. the first Elm Street? Are you talking no, about the... No, yeah. The, the, okay, because yeah, I was talking the, the about first, in, in relationship to Aliens as a follow-up Oh, yeah. See, oh, I thought you were saying, yeah, to follow, to follow. Never mind, yes. So, do you want to hear about what we're doing next week? Always. All right, next week, we are going ape shit because we've got King Kong. 
the original 1933 Fay Ray movie. And we've got kind of a lesser known movie that I'm pretty sure has an ape in it. That's why I said that. I, I It's been a long time since I've seen it, though. But we are doing the 1964 independent science fiction movie Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Oh, my God. Which I'm pretty sure is <laughs> but a guy on Mars who I think has like a chimpanzee as his partner. I could be mistaken. I could be mixing this up <laughs> with something. But I'm pretty sure we've got apes in both films. We've obviously got you're right. an ape in King Kong, if nothing else. So we've got a masterpiece in King Kong, one of the greatest films of all time, and then kind of an underseen gem that I that I have recommended to other people who really like science fiction and have never heard of it. I think if you're a Star Trek fan, you're going to love Robinson Crusoe on Mars. So yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. Please join us next week. And until then, be sure to follow us on Twitter for any kind of updates, see what we're up to. Be sure to give us a review on whatever podcasting application you listen to us on. Yeah, yeah and if you and if you can't review us, then uh, send us to a friend if you think uh, we're worthy sure, of it. Yeah, whatever. And write to us, send us death threats, it's fine, whatever. <laughs> We're going to get a, like a review on Apple Podcasts that's just a death threat. And it's like, this is weird. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I forgot to include our mailing address, but hey. 